RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. As we get ready for a show in its own right called The Legal Hub at Reality Check Radio, we're going to talk about legal matters again with our, well, I, I suppose I can refer to you as our legal panel now, probably. Is that all right? Um, though with me at the moment, Katie Ashby Cobbins and Nick Kearney here to talk about legal cases. And I know listeners, you find these interesting, uh, when, um, Katie and uh, Nick talk about them. So welcome guys. Good to see you again. Thank you. Always case. Good morning. Yeah. Still on that Hawaiian beach. If this was video, people would know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, always makes me feel relaxed. It's great. Okay. And the Rotorua t-shirt as well. (laughs) It's actually a a look at that a triathlon T-shirt, and this sets out. Oh yeah, doing my triathlons all those years ago. uh, The series around the country I went to to do about six of them. So that's 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 all the locations: Kinloch, Wanaka, Christchurch, Rotorua. Way to go! I I I could only see to Rotorua, so I I just thought you were being a promotional vehicle (laughs) for Rotorua there. Uh, anyway, promote, so promote, we're just... promoting myself then, Paul. Okay. Or, or you know, business, like yeah. one of those bus, the old days when the when they had the destinations on a roller on the bus and people make art out of them. I thought it might have been one of those, you know, old railways bus yeah. <laughs> T-shirt. Okay. Um, where do we start? Court of Appeal hearings this week. Now, we know a bit about this because we've talked to the teachers and we've talked to the Defence Force people, particularly one of the uh, people who had his name on the appeal coming up so they sound the same but two different things so who wants to take us through those two appeal hearings this week i'm happy to if you want go katie go katie no trouble well uh this week we've got the appeal uh from the high court decisions in uh the teachers uh case and also um the defense force case so there is some slight uh, uh differences Uh, And that really comes down to whether or not um, the uh, order or the requirement for the person to be vaccinated to do their job came from a government uh, order by way of um, COVID-19 order or whether or not it was a employer policy uh, as it was in the case of the Defence Force. So the teachers are appealing the uh, decision of the COVID-19 health uh, minister to require them to be vaccinated Uh, to do their job, Uh, whereas the Defence Force are slightly different. They had already won their case uh, that found that their uh, vaccine mandate was uh, illegal. Uh, They are now appealing the further decision which considered their uh, vaccine policy uh, that was uh, handed down by the Chief of Defence Forces. I guess what we need to understand is what will be specifically heard in those hearings? I mean, how, how far and wide does it go? Is it limited to a particular area? How, how does it work normally? So this is an appeal, or these are both appeals. So what is appealed is the um, uh, finding uh, at law. You can't appeal findings of fact. Uh, but this case is going to be particularly interesting because uh, what uh, the judge will be considering was whether or not um, the uh relevant officers who made these decisions uh, had given uh, all of the information to the court in the lower court to um, assess whether or not uh, there was sufficient information uh, available to put these orders into place. And so we've got a situation here where the court received, uh, the high court that is received information X, Y, Z, that information X, Y, Z was information that was given by um, the government and their evidence, uh, it's a question of whether or not any new evidence that's arisen since will be able to be uh, considered in the appeal. Uh, and, and it's possible. Um, it's not uh, always possible, but it is certainly possible to make an application uh, to the court saying, well, here's this extra evidence that wasn't provided at the time of the hearing. Um, and so this is very relevant um, to the points that Justice Cook considered. This might sound like a dumb question, but the fact that the thing didn't work, is that relevant? That could certainly be one of the um, considerations. It's really going to be, it's a judicial review of, sorry, it's an appeal of the judicial review of the um, particular officer's Mm. decision. So um, the information that that 
deciding officer had at that time to uh, put the mandate into place, um, they are saying this is the information that we knew and we had. And if that is sufficient for that decision to have been made. So it's kind of, they don't have to do much to justify the decision or, or, or get past the goalpost to say, yes, this just this decision was justified um, or reasonable. The original decisions were that the thing was more of a threat than upholding a right in the Bill of Rights. Is that what that was about? Correct. And so that comes down to whether or not um, there was justification for uh, not applying the right in the Bill of Rights um, or requiring people to be you know, receive a or undergo a medical procedure, um, you know, absent um, hmm. absent their ability to rely on that right um, as a defence or justification for not being uh, vaccinated, and to then ultimately terminate all of those staff. It was a decision in favour of police and defence service people, but then the military went a different route, as we found out when we talked with with the folks um, a few days ago. They changed the rules, basically, right? And 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 that is what is being looked at in the defence case. Yes, in the defence case, it's quite it's slightly different. It's an internal policy decision to require everyone to be vaccinated to do their role. Um, the uh, vaccination order for police and defence force was um, uh, was found to be um, uh, a, n- not to be a justified limitation, and that uh, order was uh, essentially rescinded or cancelled. Uh, and then, as shortly after um, uh, Cook's decision in the Yardley case, uh, the uh, head of the defence force turned around and said, "Oh well, we've got this vaccine policy." Uh, you have to go and get vaccinated. So it's quite a different, um, the, the, the decision maker is different um, in that case. Every time a new vaccine comes, you just automatically add it. Is that how it works? <laughs> I'll just throw it on. Okay, uh, you've got to can... get this now. We've got no information on it. We don't know how it works, but it's a vaccine. So you've got to take, I mean, it kind of sounds like that's how they were thinking. Perhaps. Uh they can only issue an order if they have the power to do so. So if we take ourselves back to, uh, I think it, no, it was November 2021, the midwives case, um, that case that uh, we supported the midwives to take was the COVID-19 uh, Protection Act didn't actually have in the powers that the government granted themselves the right or the ability to order vaccination. And so when we went to the High Court, we said, look, you know, there's no ability to mandate vaccines. They don't didn't even give them themselves that power. Um, and uh, Justice Palmer in that case turned around and said, "Oh, look, they didn't, but that's kind of necessary given that we're in this um, at this emergency." Uh, and then a couple of days later, lo and behold, the government amends the uh, orders um, or the act to allow themselves to be able to um, direct people to be vaccinated to do their job. Um, so, lucky that Mr. Palmer, Justice Palmer, was cooperative at the time then. Uh, look, interesting, because I think his dad wrote the book on the Bill of Rights. So um, His mother used to um, teach me English. Oh. There you go. I don't know how good the teaching was. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But um, they The judgment obviously... was well Russian. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. <laughs> yeah, well, his mother was an English teacher. Um, Punctuation so... was perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grammar, nicely done. Uh, so um, the government obviously realised at that point that okay, we're gonna we're gonna do something here. Uh, am I getting yeah. that right? That was the that, cue. That, that's correct. I mean, we've had um, cases uh, throughout um, this period, and the cases have often found well, actually, the government doesn't have the ability to do that. And then a few days uh, after the decision, but you know, for intents and purposes, we're under the skies of this emergency and this horrible pandemic. So, you know, we're probably just going to let it slide. And then a few days later, the government will update its legislation to grant it the power that we've just gone to the court to say, look, they don't have that power. Um, so, look, it is particularly interesting as to whether or not um, they will just keep adding on more um, vaccines. At this point in time, the COVID uh, Health Protection Act or COVID-19 
Public Health Response Act um, is very limited. They've essentially taken away a lot of the powers that they had on there. There's no longer um, the ability to require vaccination. I think at this stage, um, there's some limited rules around um, possibly uh, locked, sorry, people um, staying home if they've got, um, you know, test positive for COVID. Seven days and still, a, I think, yeah. And a few other very small powers. Um, so the government doesn't have itself currently have a power to um, order uh, or mandate vaccines, but that doesn't really um, uh, matter because what we've got is we've got lots of employers that are still very gung-ho requiring people to be vaccinated to do their job. So even if there's no government order saying if you act in this or work in this field, you have to be vaccinated, that's very different from, uh, you know, my employer at a law firm saying, oh, you've got to be vaccinated to do your job and you've got to make sure that you've had X, Y, Z up to date. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cases happening now in the Employment Relations Authority as to whether or not um, those policies are justified. Um, but we know that, um, and certainly in, in Melbourne, I think after the mandates were lifted, there were still 77% of employers that had a positive requirement of people to be vaccinated to do their job. Um, and so that's where those So it might policies... as well have just carried on the way it was. It was outsourced. It was in a way of outsourcing mandating. Correct. Yeah. Um, to those other jobs that they couldn't essentially reach um, because it's it would be pretty, it would not be a justifiable limitation to require uh, a whole lot of people in an office block uh, to be vaccinated if they you know, aren't in a healthcare setting, you know, aren't near um, a border or a border worker right. uh, and the like. Um, just back to Justice Palmer, again, it might be a silly question because I'm, I'm not a legal mind, but did he essentially make a medical decision? Because he's not a, he's not a medical person. No, he considered just simply whether or not Section 11 of the COVID Health Response Act granted the government power to oh, okay. issue vaccine orders. Uh, and the midwives' argument was that it didn't because it right. didn't specify that in the powers of all the things that it could do. Okay, well, that's I suppose that's something. I think I understand the defence thing. You may have explained the, the teacher's stance, but um, maybe just good to clarify that before we move on talking about this. The difference is that they were actually mandated. They couldn't go into the classroom without a vaccine. It wasn't like a policy of the education department. It was like a, a government what law rule requirement, mandated requirement. A vaccine order, yes, uh, from the Vaccine government. order, yeah. And so the question there will be uh, whether or not the uh, um, decision maker that uh, made that order um, was able to do so, um, was it reasonable, uh, and then consider whether or not um, it was uh, possible um, and a justifiable limitation to the Bill of of Rights to refuse to um, receive medical procedure. Mm. So it's going to be a lot of balancing uh, and a a detailed consideration of uh, the uh, Cook's decision. I don't know if you mentioned whoever made that decision. Do we find out who that is in the course of of this? Because I always like to know who, you know, by name who made these decisions. I'm pretty sure it was um, Mr. Hipkins as the Minister for COVID Health Response. Oh, Chippy himself. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I can, All right. I can circle back and check that for you. And, and the other um, interesting thing about, um, well, particularly judicial review, but probably, um, you know, certainly, hopefully, this will be um, a focus on the appeal. Is a decision maker has to be able to make a decision after examining all the information they have in front of them. Okay, and then the the you know the court to the judge decides. Well, based on all that information, was that decision within the power of the legislation that you were operating under? And one of the things that's come out um, between the date of the original um, um, hearing and and now the appeal was was in fact that the um, the decision maker, I guess uh, the, the the minister or perhaps Dr. Bloomfield, uh, did not have um, all the information in front of them um, and or did not provide it perhaps to the court at the original hearing. Uh, and so that that issue as to whether in fact, if that information was in the possession of Dr. Bloomfield or the minister, would they have made that same decision? Um, that'll be the inter- that'll be an interesting part, um, I think, for me to appeal. 
Mm, absolutely. And whether or not they're granted leave to introduce any new evidence, mm. uh, because generally it has to be, uh, it's an appeal of the decision of the court to assess whether or not um, there, you know, that there are reasons to find differently to how Justice Cook found. Yeah, and we're talking about you know, the MedSafe report that's come out that was um, disclosed to the OIA some weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's that basically um, MedSafe you know, basically says that this vaccine doesn't really work well at all. Uh, and so if that was kind of uh, information that the decision maker, the minister had at the time, uh, the, the, the question will be, how could you make then an order mandating a vaccine uh, based on information that's that you know that that said this thing doesn't work. Mm. You know? yeah. yeah, and I think that comes down to Nick the fact that you know not ten months before um, uh, the group manager of MedSafe uh, was writing to Pfizer saying, "Look, having reviewed the information you've supplied um, in your initial application, I'm not satisfied that I should grant consent uh, for this product." And then um, the posturing uh, and, and the steps that went. Uh, there, and it's going to be a question of whether or not that information was then passed through to those making the orders, or whether or not anything changed in that ten months from yeah. that initial um, decline to uh, mandates being put in, put in place requiring so, so many people. Was that to be ten months before? Did you just say, Katie? Yes, correct. That's quite a period of time before. Well, we remember that's the time when the. Um, uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine was granted provisional consent. Um, and so that was uh, early 2021. And then by the end of 2021, we had uh, most job roles in New Zealand requiring um, vaccination. Uh, and then uh, the followed very quickly by the traffic light order, which essentially saw everyone else needing to be vaccinated. Uh, that was 12 and above if they wanted to participate in society. So I guess we can infer from that you would expect that there would have been some updated information in that time period. That, that, Correct. There um, were 58 conditions put on Pfizer for the provisional consent when it was initially granted, um, and those conditions required them to provide further information um, and updated information. But it will be a question of whether or not that further information um, satisfied the justification to mandate people with these products, which were still in trial phases only received provisional consent um, and were known not to be, um, not have much longevity. I think we knew it at that point, if I remember rightly, um, thinking back that already, I think there was a, there's about a three to four month period when uh, we were behind the rest of the world and hearing, you know, reports of efficacy failing. Oh, correct. Correct. We had, um, we had, uh, Israel was well ahead of us. Um, they were essentially the uh, that they were the ground zero trials um, over and above the forty four thousand in the first clinical trial um, conducted by uh, Pfizer, and then you know very quickly after Israel there was uh, the states. So we were getting some pretty reliable data, um, you know, within that ten month period. Wasn't getting through to certain people, maybe. Um, who knows? Can we ask? Is it okay to ask, can we get a sense of success or failure in, in these hearings? Is there any way of trying to get a fix on that? Because that's what people are wondering. Are they going to be successful or not? What are the chances? Um, I haven't looked in detail at either of the cases, so I couldn't comment on the prospects. Uh, my feeling, having been involved in most in a lot of proceedings on both sides of the Tasman regarding these uh, laws and um, the like. My feeling is that the judiciary is not really prepared to make decisions against the government uh, because I think a lot of them, it, it's they'll be going out on a limb if they're finding against the government at this time. Uh, and perhaps there's also a huge element of that they believe um, that it was justified because, of course, you've got a situation where the judges um are all uh were all vaccinated uh they essentially received um requirements to or directives from the chief justice to be vaccinated and uh, vaccine passes were put on the door of the courts and likewise i think even some judges were requiring all the jury uh, members to be vaccinated so you've got kind wow. of a, a, a okay. situation where they're making a decision about something that they're 
you know, everyone's got a view on this. Everyone was somehow affected. Everyone was somehow involved. Everyone had to make a decision for themselves on this. Um, and um, I, I do hope that. Um, you Is know, that the, called groupthink? Uh, judges aren't supposed to have necessarily groupthink. Um, they have to consider the case uh, that comes to them. Uh, this is an appeal. They've received the appeal of Justice Cook's decision um, and they'll be considering the um, points of appeal. Then they'll hear the submissions from either party as to why their points um, give rise to um, a successful or, um, or unsuccessful appeal. Uh, and so it's going to be the judge has to make that decision uh, themselves applying the law. Um, but again, there's always an element because of the nature of this. It's There is an element of probable personal uh, preference, but there's, that's all supposed to be put, put to one side. You would um, hope. Yeah. I noticed Katie had the pause of uncertainty there around is there a group thing going on, you know? And, uh, yeah. You, just, you could drive a train through that balls there, Katie, by the way. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, as Katie was talking, that, uh, of course, judges are human beings as well, you know, and um, whilst they hold an incredibly responsible position and they still read the papers, you know, they still listen to things, they still hear, uh, you know, the podium of truth and whatever. So um, for them to be disengaged from any of that, and to say, I'm not going to regard any of that. I'm only going to look at what's in front of me and listen to the evidence, I think. Uh, you know, I just think that's very, very difficult for any human being to do, mm. even though they are highly respected people. I just think it's tough, uh, a tough ask for them to be able to do that. Um, so I, I wouldn't call it groupthink, but I would call it certainly some, uh, you know, a bit of gentle persuasion perhaps going on through Propaganda, perhaps, or through you know media, or and through uh, uh, chats and social circles, or what have you. And and I guess um, the other thing is, I, I you know, um, don't know, you know, judges in the high court might be thinking, well, you know, is it my turn to get court of appeal? I'm pretty good at this, you know, sort of thing. And um, and if they write a decision that's, you know, against the government, and says you guys really cocked this up, right? It's not good at all. Um, you know, will it stifle, stifle their you know, ambition to be perhaps a court of appeal judge or something? I mean, these sorts of things are uh, the judges work in a weird, wonderful way. I remember asking um, when I was at law school, uh, a, one of the lecturers there, I said, well, you know, when you've got court of appeal and you've got three judges or you've got five in the Supreme Court even sometimes, how do they make their decisions? They all sit around together and say, what do you think, John? What do you think, Jim? You know, or they, you know, they have a cup of tea and a whiskey together. What do they do? Well, they all go away and say, actually, oh, leave me alone, I'm going to think about this and, and give you my thoughts in a memo, then we'll collude. And uh, nobody really knows how it works, to be fair, Paul. And so uh, the lecturer couldn't really answer the question. I think, I mean, Katie might have some comment, but I think it's really a bit of a mystery how it all works at that level, to be honest. Look, I think you could probably, um, you're dealing with learned individuals that, you know, have, there's always an element, no doubt, where they uh, speak to the other. But at this point in time, it has to be the judge that's considering or, or judges that is considering that um, that decision. Um, and, you know, there is supposed to be a separation of power between them and the government. But, of course, uh, you're dealing with humans and there could be nuances or, um, you know, things that we're just not, uh, not aware of. And New Zealand, you know, and there's a saying that there's what... Um six degrees of separation. I, I I like to think actually New Zealand is about 0.6, to be fair, you know, and um, uh, and Wellington's a very small place with the Court of Appeal is across the road from Parliament and they all drinking coffee to get at the cafe down the corner. And I mean, I don't know, it's it's, it's a weird one for world at that level. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how it operates, to be fair. Well, a lot of very smart people did a lot of very non-smart things. So I think it's uh, fair enough to consider you know, what the smart judges might do in this situation specifically. Okay, well, it's going to be a fascinating week um, mm -hmm. from that point of view, and we'll I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, the aftermath of that next time or the time after that that we talk and when the show launches. All right. And we wish everybody the best too. That's going to be a huge yeah. week for them and their legal team. So uh, really all the best to the Defence Force team and the um, teachers. Well, I've spoken to them, and I know you've 
had engagement as well, Katie, uh, way longer than me. But the impression I got is that these are really lovely people, beautiful people. And it's, and it's so, it's kind of heartbreaking to see, you know, what's been done to them. Um, but anyway, okay, Severe Weather Act. Now, this on the surface looks like, oh, well, yeah, okay, we've had some severe weather lately. <laughs> Let's drill into this a bit. And I'm really curious about the Henry VIII clauses. First time I've ever heard about that. So let's go on the Severe Weather Act and the Henry VIII clauses. Okay, so following the you know cyclone, um, Gabrielle, I think it was, and perhaps even the Auckland situation on anniversary day, um, powers that be in government um, decided, well, we needed some more law. Because if we pass a law, um, it won't rain hard and the wind won't blow, right? So we've got to pass a law to uh, be able, be able, um, or for the crown of the state and for the, all the powers that be within the state to be able to respond more effectively and more uh, quickly uh, under severe weather emergencies uh, going into the future. Uh, particularly because we have a climate emergency now, and you know it's all going to be um, turned to custard in about three and a half seconds. So. Um, we might not they, make it to the end of the program. No, no, I'm looking at the window. It's looking pretty grim. But they, so they passed this, uh, well, they, they put a bill in front, um, the severe weather emergency bill or something like that. And what they've, what they've, uh, and say so they, that's of course the government that's um, drafted it. There's a couple of things uh, relevant, I, I think, that one is they, it was such an emergency, this thing. I mean, you know, we, we, um, We've got a climate emergency, severe weather. Well, they use these amazing words to, you know, instill all this. We we have to do this right now, otherwise it's going to be calamity. So uh, even the heading of the act is severe weather emergency bill. Oh my goodness, you know. So um, they they wrote this bill and they put it out for public submissions for the grand total of one day. And uh, wait, wait on, say that again. Yep, yep. They, How they wrote long? The, one day. <sighs> Yeah, one day. So they put it out there, and of course, you know, I didn't even know it was being done, and my one day had gone when I found out it had been You're too, you're too slow, Nick. <laughs> That's right. The select committee had already written their report, and I'm like, what, what's this thing again? You know, so what's going on here? Uh, but inside, so that's one thing, and they didn't give the public, uh, really anybody, uh, the public, organisations, affected parties, anyone uh, time to submit on 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 the bill. and the, But it's not just the bill, it's the powers that are contained within it, and uh, one of the um, clauses, and, and it's uh, you alluded to it at the start, it's called a Henry VIII um, clause, and that goes back to you know Henry VIII in the 1600s or 1700s, whenever it was. Uh, he decided by decree that things had to happen. So instead of going, uh, instead of going to Parliament um, in England, he was a king. He just said, "We're just going to do this, right?" And that's the law. Uh, and you'd think. You think, well, that happened in 1684 or something. You know, that can't happen in 2023 New Zealand, can you? Well, this is kind of what these provisions say in this bill. Uh, and how it works is that um, so the the legislation allows the minister to uh, pass regulations um, under, the, under, the, uh, under the Act. Uh, and um, the, the regulations pretty much allow the minister, by the stroke of a pen, to uh, amend the legislation itself in the event of a severe weather emergency because I think it's, you know, we have to act so quickly. We can't convene parliament. We can't do all this uh, you know, democratic stuff. We just have to have the minister, um, by the stroke of his pen, uh, amend the law and say, now we're doing this and it's done in half an hour, okay? So that that's one thing. But more more alarmingly is what the statute also says is that not only can the minister do that for the severe weather emergency bill, he can do that for other statutes which are related to the severe weather emergency bill as well. And um, and the list of statutes that he can do it to um, are listed here, one to ten, but the minister can add to those if he wants to. Hmm. Okay, so uh, that is essentially what the Henry VIII Type clauses do, and both, well, the uh, the law, New Zealand Law Society, you know, uh, strongly um, condemned the, the way the bill was written in that regard. So did the um, New Zealand Initiative, and it's a very, you know, draconian way. We've had it. We've had a a bit of a habit in this country over the past ten or twenty years of allowing uh, regulations to, um, I guess, overrule the proper function of Parliament. 
and you know any any particular statute can allow regulations to be passed under it, uh, and and the regulations don't don't have the scrutiny of, of a select committee, don't have the scrutiny of a of a gov- of a, of a um, parliament, don't have the scrutiny of the public to make submissions and the, whatever whatever. The minister just sits in his office or her office and just says, "Oh, um, this is what I'm doing, and this is the this is the law now." Um, and gets the governor general to sign it off, and bang, we're done. All right, as I say, it can happen in 24 hours. Wow. And it's, it's been quite a habit uh, um, in lawmaking over the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, but this goes this goes to a, even a further extreme um, by saying that you know, um, not only, as I said, can the minister um, amend these acts of parliament by his or her pen, he can add to that list if he or she wants to. I'm just thinking as you're explaining that, so severe weather, if you argue that the climate change was causing the severe weather events, could you attach this way of kind of lawmaking to order to anything downstream from that, or would it have to be specifically related to the actual event? Well, the purpose of regulations um, is to enable, um, I guess, I'd say minor laws, but enable regulations to be passed under the Empowering Act, Empowering Act under which they were made. So you've got the Severe Weather Emergency Act, and then you have regulations under it, and those regulations are only meant to be um, passed, if you want to call it that word, or written, or produced uh, completely. What they call um, intravirase, or in line with the Empowering Statute, in line with the Severe Weather Emergency Act. Okay, so anything that goes, for example, if there was a severe weather emergency act, which there is, and one of the regulations said, oh, by the way, you haven't got freedom of speech in the Bill of Rights Act now, and that's one of the regulations I'm making, not allowed to do it because it's outside the ambit of that act completely. Um, so, so that, and that's what we call ultraviaries, ultraviaries of the act, and the regulation will be struck down and be deemed to be ineffective and um, um, invalid. Um, so, so there is a, a small check and balance on regulations passed by um, or put in place by ministers under empowering legislation. Yeah, but this is why the this this bit of law is so alarming because it it goes a couple of steps further uh, and allows regulations to be put in place to both add to the list of other acts and, and change those acts as well. Could it be misused? Um, I think we've seen over the last two or three years that there's ample um, grounds for, for for things like this to be misused. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but the thing, the thing about uh, where this also comes into play, and I might talk about it shortly, is you know we have a constitutional structure in the country that it has checks and balances on various acts of um, a parliament of the executive, which is you know the cabinet and the police and and whatever. Um, uh, and just by making a law by you know pulling out your feather pen and your cap and writing something down and signing it off. Um, there's no checks and balances really on that at all. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's, um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 that, and that's the point, yeah. very open to abuse in, in that format. There's the potential to be creative with it. Well, you're just uh, allowing the one decision and the one amendment to be rested in one person without it being right. democratically considered. Yeah. Um, in yeah. defence to the Act, the Severe Weather Act does define what a severe weather event is. Oh, um, so it's not just carte blanche. I've decided this is a um, you know that that puddle that just formed uh, from that rainstorm um, is is a severe weather event. There's you know it's specified to cyclone hail um, uh, between eighth January uh, and ending twelfth of January, heavy rain in Northland. Uh, between 26 January 2023 and 3 February 2023, and then Cyclone Gabriel. Um, so it's limited to those three events at this stage. Um, yeah. But the Henry VIII clause could allow them to add to Well, the- I was just thinking, you know, a lot of people in, uh, where I am in Wellington complain about uh, the waves coming over the roads, and there's usually debris there and everything. Now, you could say that they were caused by severe weather events powered by climate change, and then people could say, well, you're living too close to the sea, and and rocks could hit your fence, so sorry, you're going to move. Well, absolutely, and and of course, if you, may, you know, my experience of um, of government power is that um, if you give uh, government one little tenth of power, uh, they will take it, and they will stretch it out, and before you know it, um, they've 
taken that one, you know, one little bit of power and turned it into five or ten bits of power. So um, this is where the vigilance applies, and this is why this is why it's very important to have these checks and balances on the power um, that the state is able to impose upon its citizens through these branches of uh, uh, government and parliament, which you know I've just talked about. I know it's political, but you'd expect an opposition to say something about that, wouldn't you? I actually think, you know, the cynic in me thinks that um, uh, opposition politicians uh, don't oppose this because they think one day that might be me and I'd quite like that. Right. It'd be an easy job to do, you know. Mm. It's about power. Well, I mean, you stay away from those pesky um, voters who might sort of trouble you with submissions and whatever, you know and want to have their say. And look, just why I think this is quite important um, and why we've raised it again is that uh, we didn't even have Henry VIII clauses um, in the COVID health response legislation. Um, So they hadn't granted themselves the ability to change or make um, amendments to legislation by the stroke of a pen. Um, You know, there was still, um, albeit, the, um, a lot of the acts came in really quickly, still within 24 hours and the like. You know, the fact is, is that a clause of these nature weren't even in the COVID Health Response Act. And if the, you know, you would think that that would have been prime um, for a prime legislation to include such a clause. Yeah, and, and that's the point the Law Society made in its submission that you've still, Parliament still has the ability to pass law under urgency if it wanted to. Uh, and it was thought that it needed to pass some other act in the future, you know, around severe weather or something under urgency. Um, it could it could do that. It didn't need the regulatory power under these Henry VIII clauses to do it. I just thought if you had a severe weather event and the um, response was bungled and it didn't look good, could you limit the media's access through that? I'm not sure how you could because the media is not really subject to legislation. Um, well, you, you could stop people, I don't know, yeah, what do yeah. I know, but you stop people yeah. going to certain areas or, or... Oh, without question, you know, well, they did it during lockdown, didn't they, with COVID. Mm. They just kept, kept you in your house and stopped you going out more than, more than what, two kilometres or something, unless you had... No, I won't say that. Uh, you can get it, edit this bit out, unless you had pink hair and a bike and you were a, a science expert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's okay. plenty of them. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, excluding somebody uh, from a particular area uh, because of a risk or something or even a perceived risk might be more a civil defence response. Um, Right. Okay. I'm just trying to understand how it could be uh, creatively used to... Well, there we go. So exactly what Cody said. So you've got the Civil Civil Defence Act or whatever it's called. Um, You know, the Henry VIII clause in this bill, uh, they could just simply add the Civil Civil Defence Act to that list of legislation past regulation than that to say actually now it's a civil defense emergency and and using my pen and this bit of paper i'm going to do this yeah gosh Mm. yeah Hmm. sort of undermines the whole concept of the checks and balances really doesn't it and when you look at some of those uh decision makers it makes you worry okay is there anything more to talk about that i think i i understand now what the henry the eighth clauses mean Unless you've got anything more to say about that. No heads are going to be rolling, hopefully. All right. Um, This will be of interest to people, though I think there's a bit of um, water to go on the bridge yet with this, but the IPCA report on protest anticipated this week. Will we learn much from what could uh, happen if this thing drops this week, or will it be a bit of time after that before we can sort of understand it? Sure. Uh, Well, Paul, this is the Independent Police Complaints Authority uh, report into the police conduct at the uh, Wellington protest in uh, February and March of 2022, uh, and really the police conduct in and around uh, that event. And that report's anticipated this week. Uh, The Independent Police Complaints Authority received thousands of complaints about police conduct, Uh, They had a lot of um, recordings and photographs and uh, information provided to it, and I understand they've been spending the last year uh, uh, fully investigating, um, you know, the police conduct, and their report is going to land this week, so, or is anticipated to land this week, so uh, it's more of a, just a case of something else to be aware of what's happening this week in addition to the Court of Appeal hearings, um, and I think that there are some people that are very interested to see uh, what's in that report. The Independent Police Complaints Authority um, are not police officers. Um, Many of them are lawyers. 
Um, the it's headed up by a former partner of quite a one of the top six law firms, um, I believe, or certainly this this investigation was. Uh, and I think it will be something that people were particularly interested in um, hearing um, or, or seeing um, what criticisms of if any of the police's behaviour at the protest, um, because of course you know they may be able to see something different that wasn't necessarily publicised on mainstream media, um, and. You know, there's a lot of people. It's quite a polarising subject, much like the um, Springbok tour protest was. Yes, I remember that. I, I I remember that being in the streets for that. The interesting dimension about this, though, is that a lot of people were able to watch multiple live feeds in real time and saw things, you know, happen kind of in front of them. So people are going to be measuring off that with what this report says and i know you know nothing's that simple and and you know you can see something but not understand the full context or what went before or what's happening off out of view of the camera but that's that's quite an interesting dimension to this isn't it correct so certainly with the um, springbok tour it was a lot of still images very limited video um photography or video footage of the um of the protest here we've got um you know 23 days of protest we've got uh social media we've got everyone's got a camera in their hand um or or, or a phone or a video and uh, are taking videos and uh, a lot of the initial work that the independent police complaints authority was doing was actually collecting the um video uh, footage from those who took it um, and, and using it to consider in in the decision that or, or the report that they come to, and I understand that um, the Independent Police Complaints Authority could only make recommendations. I don't think they can necessarily make findings. Um, I would have to, or I'd have right. to take look at that a little bit closer. Um, but it is, yeah, I, I think it'll be a case of they'll they'll review it, uh, they'll look at the issues, they will perhaps make a finding of, of fact on the five different police, um, I guess, operations or, you know, each time the police advanced on the protest area group uh, and then, you know, make a conclusion from that based on, you know, the video footage and, and uh, people's accounts that they've received. That'll be one of the biggest jobs they've had to do, I would imagine, given the quantity of of content, um, how long the thing went for, the number of people involved, the number of police involved. That's that's a big job by the sounds of things. Huge. And it's taken them over a year so far just to get to this stage. And look, they would have received terabytes of data. Um, and you know, that turns into multiple hours of of video um or photos. Yeah. You know, it, it it was a very long um it, it was it was a long protest. Um but essentially there were five main uh, police moves, which will probably be where their attention is is focused. And, and I can imagine, look, I, I can imagine out, out of this sort of event, um, the report must be hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, as well. And so there'll be a risk, obviously, for anybody reading it to um, take a snippet here and a snippet there, and you know, use it to their advantage. Um, it, yeah, I think taking the whole thing as a or the whole thing as a whole, I guess, and uh, applying a blowtorch across the whole thing will be uh, a, probably quite a difficult exercise. Mm. But it will be. But it will be interesting. Mm, and it'll take a while to fully digest too. I would imagine it's not like it won't be a quick read. <laughs> no, I can't through. imagine no, that it will be. No, no. Yeah, who's up for reading it? <laughs> who's volunteering here? <laughs> I will. Okay. All right. Um, so look out for that. And, and there'll be uh, um, uh, fallout from that too, I'm sure. Okay, we're going to finish up on, on this um, matter. And this has come to light in the past week with comments of the, or from the MP for Wairarapa, who's starting to become a bit of a star for the government. Who wants to pick up on, uh, I've got it uh, titled here, uh, Equality of Suffrage via our Constitutional Framework. So, What's Mr. McNulty been saying and, and what does it mean? He's a new Minister of Local Government, isn't he? And um, he appeared on TV last week, um, I think probably much to the um, annoyance of, of, of the Prime Minister who's trying to bury this stuff. But 
again, he said uh, in relation to the, um, well, I'm still going to call them three waters because it's still three waters, um, reforms that, uh, you know, that required uh, basically 50-50 in the 10 entities that are being established, 50-50 makeup of, um, of EU Māori um, representation and then other New Zealanders, I suppose, that uh, New Zealand's founding document, which is, of course, Satiriti, uh, contains provisions that are different from a purely academic democratic framework. So, you know, kind of think, what does that mean? You're saying, well, actually, look, the treaty might uh, not exactly um, uh, be, you know, what we're looking for, but we read it differently and, and we think it means this. And therefore, what it means is, uh, and I'll say the words, it means co-governance, and it means we must have EWI at the table and everything, particularly Three Waters, and that's kind of what the treaty says. And it may not be what um, United Nations documents say about human rights and voting equal. The quality of suffrage is basically, you know, I mean, the, um, there was a, I think the 17th Amendment to the United States Constitution Allowed women to vote, uh, you know. So, you know, that was previously prohibited that women could vote. So, they thought that every person, despite their race, colour, creed, or uh, sex or religion, should be able to vote uh, and get a seat at the table, despite their preference um, of what they are. Um, that's kind of equality of suffrage, I guess. Uh, and he's kind of, and, and this government saying that we're kind of disregarding it. And we I think. It kind of just goes back to basically affirmative action, really, you know. So um, they, they just think that, um, you know, they're a minority, I suppose, or a treaty partner, and their interpretation of the treaty means that they must be at the table. Simple as that. Despite um, these concepts that say, well, you shouldn't really do that just based on, you know, on race, religion, sex, colour, whatever else, whatever else. But interestingly, I, I looked at that and I thought, well, um, I did a bit of research, and uh, this is from the uh, Ministry of Justice's website, actually. And the Ministry of Justice's website um, says this about our constitutional, that's New Zealand's constitutional framework. Uh, this system articulates the roles and functions of the various branches of state. So the exercise of state power can take place within clear boundaries, be scrutinised, and be held to account. And, you know, none of us would dispute that. And that's, we've just talked about that in relation to the Henry VIII clauses um, a couple of minutes ago. But it goes on to say, this system, though, includes Tatiriti o Waitangi. But Tatiriti is not described here, and here's the important words, as it is treated as a separate system. Hmm. <laughs> so there that's, it is. From, that's from the Ministry of Justice's website. Okay. I think so, it'll be amended after this call. <laughs> yeah, quite quite possibly. So, um, I mean, you know, this stuff, and I and I and I've said a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to things like this. And um, you know, New Zealand doesn't really have a, well, we don't have a um, a written constitution as such. Our constitution, um, the way our country is made up, is sort of just thrown together through a variety of documents, legislation, acts of parliament, and other bits and pieces, including go far back as the Bill of Rights and was it 1792 or something, and then the Magna Carta from about 100 years before that. So, um, you know, we kind of throw those in the mix, the Bill of Rights Act, the Constitution Act of New Zealand. Um, uh, but, of course, the Tatiriti or Treaty is, is never included as a constitutional document um, uh, because we had never really had the debate never really had the, um, I guess, the, the fortitude at political level to try, you know, it's, I think it's just too um, politically controversial to try and include it as part of our constitutional framework. So I'll leave it sitting to one side, uh, and, and this is kind of what happens um, as, as a result. And the other thing is that we saw it with, there was a bill down at um, a piece of law passed that allowed my Tahu uh, to have representation on the Canterbury Environment Canterbury um, board, okay, uh, and they were appointments; they weren't elected. Uh, and you know, the National Party, Paul Goldsmith, I think, jumped up and down and said, "Oh, this is terrible! You know, we'll repeal that." 
but they conveniently forget that when the Auckland Council legislation was passed, um, you know, John Key uh, appointed um, the, or put in place the Independent Maori Statutory Board, INSB, as we call it, which puts two voting members of iwi uh, on the Auckland Council, appoints them, and, and they get votes. Okay. So, and there's been a couple of instances of that puts the council from 20 up to 22 um, with full voting rights because because of because they're Maori. And, and I think John Key thought it was too hard at the time um, to try and avoid it. He had the Maori Party in government with him, I think, with, um, you know, Peter Sharples and co. So uh, these things are not, look, I mean, they're not um, singularly at the feet of, of the current government. I think the National Party has got a bit to blame. Uh, itself as well, and I, I, as I, you know, keep saying, we just need to keep a watchful eye on it because the creep can take place, and uh, it just irks, it just irks with me deeply that we have appointments to these sorts of bodies, organisations, councils, and what have you, not elected appointments uh, based on race, who get. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be appointed and to sit there and to listen and to go back to your people and to. Um, you know, explain to them what's going on. It's the second thing to actually get a vote and to be able to influence what's being discussed with no ability of the people underneath, uh, you, know, you and I and everybody else, to actually say, I don't like what you did or voted there. I'm going to try and get rid of you at the next election. You can't do it. Right? Um, yeah, so I find that a bit, I, I find it a bit troubling. You're probably not the only one. No. I would imagine. Yeah. Fascinating um, cases to talk about this program. I hope uh, people have learned about a few things and they know what's coming up and there'll be some things to talk about next time we get together. And we want to get the show launched soon in its own right, Legal Hub here on Reality Check Radio. So I want to thank Katie Ashby Cobbins and Nick Kearney for coming in again to do our Legal Hub thing. Really interesting. And uh, I look forward to doing it again, maybe in a week's time here on RCR. So thank you guys. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.